You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. So we are continuing our sermon series through the Gospel account of John. We're still in chapter one. We're going to be wrapping up John's prologue this morning. Uh, So that takes us into verse 14 on down through 18 of chapter one. If you've been with us over the last several weeks, then you know that we've been taking a slow walk uh, through the prologue of the account of John. You know, John writes this poem, this kind of beautiful, poetic, elevating worship uh, 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 prologue before he jumps into the historic details uh, and, and the, you know, the idiosyncrasies of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There's going to be, I mean, we're going we're to spend the, the better part of a year and a half walking left to right through all of the details of this account. And John stopped before he went into the specifics to give us this prologue where he just fixed his eyes on who Jesus really is and why he's bothering to document this at all. And that's why we're spending so long on it. For three consecutive weeks, Pastor Michael preached, in the beginning was the word, right? For three consecutive weeks, it took us to get through the first 13 verses of the prologue. And if you've been with us, and if you've not, we'll preach it again this morning, then you've heard that in the beginning, the very beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was Himself, God, that He was in the beginning with God, that all things were made through Him, and that without Him was not anything made that was made, that in Him was life, and the life was the light of men, that this light, life shines in the darkness, and that the darkness has not overcome it. And last week, Pastor Michael preached that there was a man sent from God whose name was John, that he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him, that he was not the light, but that he came to bear witness about the light, that the true light who gives light to all was coming into the world, that he was in the world, that the world was made through him, but yet the world did not know him, that he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. This is beautiful, poetic, high, exalting language in this prologue that fixes eyes on a Jesus who was there in the beginning. And that's why we took three weeks to do this, that in the beginning was the Word. This Jesus Christ was there in the creation story. We painted this picture, John painted this picture for us, where Jesus Christ is there hovering over the face of the deep, speaking into the void that is by His very Word that He procreated with speech, that all things were created by Him and through Him and for Him. That when we think about the God of creation, that the image that should come to our mind is Jesus, who is himself the image of the invisible God. And so we get this high view of a Jesus who was there in the beginning, who by his own word all things came into creation, who without him was not anything made, who in him is life, and that that very life is the light of men. We get this growing picture of a Jesus who is the source of all things. It says that this light of Jesus, this life of Jesus shines into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. An important place for us to start as we recap because last week Pastor Michael preached this harrowing but true message that when the light came into this world that he created, that the world did not know him, that his own people rejected him, 
that until the light of Christ and the life of Christ has shown on the hearts of man that we are mere darkness to be overcome. Merely darkness to be overcome. But when we get this promise that the light has not over, that the darkness has not overcome the light, it's important because what it says to us is that Jesus was not plan B. That he wasn't written into the story 2,000 years ago when the first plan was screwed up and that somehow we kind of called an audible and sent Jesus in to fix things. But that from the beginning, Jesus Christ was there speaking this whole story, this one plan of God by the one God. This one story was always being written by him. He's written this thing. And if Jesus has written it, then surely the darkness cannot overcome him because if the eternal plan and purpose of God from all eternity past has been to bring all things to bow at the name of Jesus Christ, and it has, if the eternal plan of God from eternity past has been that all things would serve to magnify his glory by the means of magnifying his grace through the gospel account of Jesus Christ, this is true. If the purpose of all things is to magnify his glory, by magnifying his grace, then not even the darkness can overcome it because it means that Jesus, who is writing this story as a plan A, is making all things, sin, darkness, even death, bow and serve this chief end. That he would be glorified, that Christ, like we sang this morning, would be magnified. But Pastor Michael preached a bit of a cliffhanger last week, right? Like he left it kind of hanging. He spoke the truth over us, that we are the darkness that the light needs to pierce through, that the light needs to illuminate, that absent the regeneration of Christ, that we are the rebels, that we are the enemies, that we are, so when he came and he entered into this story and we try to see Christ rightly, we're like, okay, Jesus, in the beginning was the word, okay, you are God. That means that not just the God who spoke at creation, but that you are the God who walked with Adam and Eve in the coolness of the day in the Garden of Eden, and you are the God from whom Adam and Eve hid with their fig leaves in the bushes when they sinned, and you are the God who, was, who promised to them that a Savior would come and trample the head of the serpent in the garden, and you are the God who cast them out of the garden, and you are the God that the blood of Abel cried out to when he was struck down by his brother Cain for justice, that Jesus, you are this God, you are the God of the flood, and you are the God who made the covenants to Noah and Abraham and David, but you, you, yours is the blood of the new covenant in Christ Jesus. Like, like, Jesus, you are the God of the Bible. This is you? The true light who gives light to everyone, but when you came into the story, we didn't know you? We rejected you? We were mere darkness to be overcome. This is true. And this promise is spoken in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Jesus said that to be his disciple, that we must be born again. And here, right in the entry, in the prologue of John, he casts the gospel over us. And it's important because as I wrap up the prologue this morning, guys, as we finish this, you will have the 
all of the necessary content of the gospel having been preached over you over the last four weeks. Everything necessary for you to understand what is necessary to be brought from death to life, from darkness into light, will have already been preached over you. And then we will spend a year and a half walking through the details of how that came to be and how that was all walked out. But everything you need will have been preached over you by the time we get done this morning. So I want you to hear it, that if this morning you find yourself part of the darkness not illuminated by the light of Christ, who you have not received him and believed in his name, then you are mere darkness to be conquered. That's where you stand today. But all, for all who receive him and who believe in his name, I know this is unorthodox to do like a call to faith in the beginning of the sermon. Guys, let's do it. If you stand this morning having the light of Christ shine over you, Paul said that he's not ashamed of the gospel because the power of salvation for those who believe, but is the stench of death for those who are perishing. The gospel has been preached over this room. Let it be the power of salvation for those who believe. All those who believed in his name become children of God, receive new birth by the Spirit, become new creations. I pray that this morning, that if that's not you, that you would hear from me, that there is nothing hindering you this morning from receiving Jesus Christ, to be made a child of God, to be brought into the light from the darkness. And if this is the 10,000th time that you have heard it, I pray that you would be encouraged this morning once again to fix your eyes upon Jesus for all of the promises that we are going to receive this morning. Let's work our way through it. Verse 14, I'll read the whole thing, then we'll go verse by verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Going back to verse 14, I mean, let's pause sentence by sentence here and think this through, okay? And the word, Jesus, the God of creation there hovering over the deep, the God that I've just described to you, the, God, the eternal God of the Bible, became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh. And we don't want to skip that one verse ago in verse 13. The Gospel writer says that to all who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of the will of the flesh. That to put your faith in Jesus Christ is to be, that, that he entered into that which he was rescuing us from. That he became that which he was rescuing us from. That he took on flesh. He became flesh. Now this is, I think, tough for us, and I don't know that like all of you guys are having like a men in black image in my head like I did when I was, when I was uh, preparing the sermon, but I, stay with me. When we think about Jesus becoming flesh, one of the things that's working against us, and maybe you wouldn't describe it this way, but I think that I, I, as we talk about this, you'll find that you're with me on this. That we say, yes, God became flesh, or he became humanoid. 
human-ish, kind of human, that he looked like us, he walked among us, he certainly, I mean, he could have fooled you and made you think that he was human, but inside of that body bag that looks like a, a human, there's something different, an alien kind of working the controls. That he became human in form, sure, but not really human. And maybe you've never thought that specific thing, but I'm kind of artistic, and so I think in story. But every time that you talk to a God who you don't receive as relatable or knowable or identifiable, when you act like you cannot draw near to him because he couldn't really understand, it's because we are missing this central doctrine that he really did become fully human, that he became flesh. And you want to know how, guys, that we can know that is because Jesus, in his goodness and in his kindness, knowing that we would doubt, that we would wonder, that if we cracked him open, what would we find in there? He said, crack me open. He let us crack him open and discover that he bleeds red blood. That when he cries, he cries salty tears. That when he thirsts, that he sweats salty sweat. That when you punch him, he bruises. When our God, when the Word took on flesh, he became punchable, killable. The Word became flesh. He thirsted. He hungered. He tired. He cried. He bruised. He died. In all ways, Jesus Christ became human. And another challenge that we're going to hear, maybe not in these words, but again, work it out with me, is we say, you know, God, you don't really know what it's like to be a human. What we do is we put ourselves back in the garden and we say, God, yes, you're the architect and you had a design and, and, you, and you walked among us when we were in the garden and when everything was as it was. But I remember how it went. Once we sinned, you kicked us out. You said that we couldn't dwell with you anymore and that you couldn't dwell with us. And then as we progress through the scriptures, you create all of these hoops that need to be jumped through in order to get near to you or for you to get near to us. Surely you don't know what it's like to be us, to be human. And so surely I'm justified if I need to take things into my own hands to pursue comfort, satisfaction, joy, fulfillment, righteousness, whatever. Guys, I need you to go back to the garden with me. And I need you to remember that it is Jesus Christ, the Word Himself, speaking all things into existence. And that in creating man, that they breathed, the, that God breathed the breath of life into humankind and said, We shall make him in our own image. In our own image. Humanity, humankind, has been created for a purpose. The chief end of man is to image God. It's what we are created for, to image him. What is the purpose of an image? To image. We are a mirror. We are to reflect the grace and glory and characteristics of our God. It's what we were made for. And we had that in the garden. But when sin corrupted the image of humankind, we no longer perfectly did what we were designed to do. 
And so does the original designer know better than we do what it meant to be human? Absolutely. But can we then charge God and say, well, now that things are broken, you can't possibly understand? Yes, that's the charge that we make against God. So what did he do? He entered back into the story yet again in human form. In order that our God, Jesus, taking the form of a human, I know this can be tough, track with me, okay? Jesus Christ didn't temporarily take the form of a human. He didn't dwell with us for a time to earn some clout. He has chosen to eternally exist forevermore in the form of a human. Today, he is seated at the right hand of the Father bodily, always representing the case of humankind. Our God dwells bodily. We have a great high priest sitting at the right hand of God. Let me talk to you about why we're talking about this. Because when we say that Jesus Christ took on flesh, we are not talking about just a one-time mission that he took. We're talking about him identifying God with humankind once again. So when we say to God, Jesus, you couldn't possibly know what it's like to be human, we know that he could say back to us, no, no. You don't know what it means to be human. Because Jesus Christ has now become the highest definition of what it means to be human. In taking on flesh and perfectly living a life that honored the Father. Think about how many times Jesus said this. Follow with me. Think about how many times he said, I do not do my own will, but I do the will of the one who sent me. That I do not speak my own words, but I speak the words of the Father who sent me. He was again and again saying, I am here to be human. See, we hear those phrases like, I do the will of the Father who sent me. I only say the words of the Father who sent me. And we think, oh, he's describing his God nature. He's describing his human nature. He is doing what humans were created to do, to image God, to reflect the image of God, his glory and his grace, to perfectly carry out his purposes in creation. Jesus in the flesh was the perfect, the apex of the definition of humanity, such that we don't say to him, you're the alien and, and you don't know what it means to be human, but he says to us, you don't know what it means to be human. Look to me. He took on flesh and identified with us, and he didn't just become flesh, but he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. Like in the Garden of Eden where God walked with Adam and Eve in the coolness of the day, Jesus dwelt among us. And this is not a small doctrine that he dwelt among us. That he didn't just become flesh, but in the flesh he dwelt among us. That means that everything that you experience, he experienced. Not just in the wilderness when he was tempted for the 40 days, but day by day he experienced mockery and jeering and betrayal. He experienced, like I said, hunger and fatigue and thirst. He experienced laughter and friendship. He experienced death of friends and loved ones. He dwelt among us. He lived in this actual world. He walked on this actual ground with us. So again, when you talk to God and you feel like you are talking to a God who is not relatable, who is not approachable, who does not know you, who doesn't really understand. You're getting these doctrines wrong. This is what you're missing. The Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. And that ought to be some amazing news, but by dwelling among us, what did He open Himself up to? We didn't want Him. 
By dwelling among us, he put himself willfully at the hands of sinners to be crucified for our transgressions. He cannot be crucified on the cross for us unless he enters all the way in. And he entered all the way in, making himself low, all the way to the form of a servant, obedient to the point of death on a cross. And so when in Hebrews we hear the author say that we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but in all ways has been tempted and tried as we are and yet without sin. We know that right there at the right hand of the Father today is Jesus dwelling bodily, having lived the perfect human life, the life that we were designed to live, having died a death at our hands that we were due to die for not carrying out the life of a perfect human. And that he makes an eternal appeal at the right hand of the Father, fully able to sympathize with us in our weakness. And then John writes, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we have seen his glory? We have seen his glory, John says. Guys, if you've been with Mercy's Door for some time, you know that two years ago we walked through the book of Exodus. And you might remember, maybe you've been in the church a long time, sorry if you don't know the story. But Moses says to God at one point, God, let me see your glory. Show me your glory. And God says back to Moses, I will allow all of my goodness, the fullness of my goodness to pass before you, and I will speak my name over you, but you cannot see my face, for no one can see my face and live. And so he hides Moses in the cleft of a rock, and he passes by him and speaks his name over him, and he allows him to peer upon his back, but he's not allowed to see his face. And here John is saying, we have seen his glory. What Moses was told, you may not see, John is saying, we've seen it. We're going to get there. I don't want to steal from a future sermon because it's here in the book of John. But we're going to read the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. We're going to read a story where John himself, along with James and Peter, are allowed to literally see Jesus transfigured so that they see him in his glorified state. In his glorified, it's amazing. And there with him is Elijah and Moses, okay, on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so uh, John, when he says, we have seen his glory, is speaking as literally as you can take that. He's literally seen his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw Jesus glorified, standing there with Moses and Elijah and with his friends, James and Peter, and they saw his glory. That part is true. And as a segue, and we'll get back to it in a second, Moses was there. The Moses that God said, no one can look on my face and live, is there with who? John and Peter and James looking upon the glory of Jesus on the mount. Moses and Elijah, who had been gone for generations, there hanging out with Jesus in all of his glory for them to see. When John says, we've seen his glory, that's what he meant. I've seen his glory. But in case you feel like you're missing out, that's not all that he meant. He also meant corporately 
we've seen his glory. In taking on flesh and dwelling among us, we have seen his glory. When we see Jesus kneeling down and washing the disciples' feet, including the feet of Judas, his betrayer, we have seen his glory. When we see Jesus healing the sight of the blind or the hearing of the deaf or healing the sick or raising the dead, we see him multiplying loaves and fishes to feed the masses. We see him speak to the storm and tell it to stop and it calms when he walks on the water, when he's crucified at Calvary and then rises victorious over that three days later, when he appears for 40 days before a great cloud of witnesses, when he teaches them how all of the testimony of scriptures from the law and the prophets and and, and the Psalms all testify about him, when they literally see him ascend back to the right hand of the Father, by God, we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Last week we were introduced to John the Baptist, and most of you guys probably know this, but John the Baptist was conceived about six months before Jesus was conceived in Elizabeth, and Mary and Elizabeth gave birth those six months apart, And so Jesus and John the Baptist were cousins. And they were both given, obviously, the different purposes. And John's purpose was to roll out the red carpet for Jesus, to make a way in the wilderness, to fulfill that prophecy, to go and declare that the Messiah was coming and to repent for the forgiveness of sins and be baptized, to prepare a way for the Messiah. That was the purpose of John. But John was born first. He was conceived first. His ministry started first. He built a following first, all before Jesus. And here, John bore witness about Jesus and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. If he wasn't conceived before you, born before you, started his ministry before you, what do you mean he was before you? He means what Jesus said to the Jews when he said, before Abraham was, I am. John, by the Spirit, was permitted to see about Jesus what was true, that this is the eternal God who was there in the beginning, from the very beginning. He who's come after me ranks before me because he was before me. He was before me, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus said to the Jews, and they picked up stones to stone him. Colossians 1, verse 15 and 19 says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He who comes before me ranks before me because after me ranks before me because he was before me this is the early declaration of what john is espousing to be true that jesus christ is himself god verse 16 for from his fullness we have all received 
grace upon grace. Guys, this verse is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. When I was first a believer, John was the, when I was first introduced to Christ, uh, the Gospel account of John was the first book of the Bible I ever read, and it took me forever to get through the prologue, which uh, why I'm passionate about it. And this verse just really struck me that it's from his fullness that we have all received. From his fullness that we have all received grace upon grace. And the idea of fullness in Christ is an idea that I think a lot of us uh, could really use getting our eyes fixed on this morning. It certainly was for me back when I first read John, and it is for me every time I come back here. That we are receiving grace upon grace from the fullness of Christ. So I want to explain to you some of the prayers that just don't make any sense if this is true. When you say things to the Lord like, God, if you'll just do this one thing for me, then I won't ask for anything else. As if he's like the keeper of a storehouse rationing out grain. He's got to somehow stretch it to meet everybody's needs and, and, and kind of meet that out. You're not understanding that it's from his fullness that we have all received. When you go to God like a beggar, saying, God, I, I, don't, I don't deserve it, and, and Lord, I know that other people have much bigger problems than I have, and, and that I'm just a lowly this or that or whatever, you're not seeing that it is from his fullness that we all receive. And when you don't want to pray to God at all because of this unbelief about his fullness, and you start looking in other places, you will find that nothing else offers you fullness. That there is only one spring of living water that never runs dry. There is no, only one cup that overflows with grace upon grace from which you can always draw. That no matter how much you drink, it never runs dry. That only exists in Jesus. And yet if we don't believe that, then we will find other things to be just as well. And so we go and we drink from filthy cisterns or we drink from, from wells that do run dry, looking to people or status or sex or substance or money, greed, power, status, esteem, reputation, whatever, to fill us because we want to be full. But the fullness of Christ that, we, that, that is described to you, the fullness of Christ, it comes from the fact that he has existed eternally, co-equal in majesty and glory with God the Father and God the Spirit, that the three-in-one holy God of creation, that that God experiences shalom, fullness, wholeness, unity, true oneness. From that fullness is where we receive our grace upon grace. And then we got to get to this word received. Because maybe we start to buy in that God, that God in Christ is, is full, that, that, that everything we need can be found in Him. But then we don't understand how we get it. We don't understand that we simply receive it. And we want to make that word into earned. From, the fullness, from His fullness, we have all earned grace upon grace. So when you're going to God and you're saying to him, God, I've been a good boy, I've been a, I've been a rule follower, look at what I've done, and you believe that you're somehow leveraging the gifts of God as if they're not free and overflowing from his fullness. Or when you think that somehow the storehouse is locked and that it's not accessible to you until you've done X, Y, and Z. And so yeah, he's fullness, but he's not for me. The fridge is full, but it's locked. We miss it. From his fullness, we have all received 
grace upon grace. You'll notice that it doesn't say in verse 12, but to all who did accept Jesus and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. They receive him. They receive him. You see, it's, it's a different word and it matters. It matters, okay? Because on Christmas or on your birthday or when somebody just wants to love you, you know, think about a time that somebody just wanted to minister to my family in a time of need, dropped an, an anonymous envelope in our mailbox to take care of a need for us. It was a beautiful gesture. We received it. Didn't ask for it, didn't earn it, didn't even accept it. We just received it. And this is the nature of the grace of God. This is the nature of the light of Christ. It shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. This is what we call irresistible grace. We receive grace upon grace. So open your hands and just receive it. Just sit under the waterfall of his grace and believe in the name of Jesus. That's our invitation. Verse 17 for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one has ever seen God, semicolon, and thought. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus said, in John 14, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. The reason why our gospel writer can say that we have seen his glory is because we have seen the face of Christ. Jesus Christ is God. That's the sentence that we need to speak from, our, from the pulpit this morning. That's the sentence that we need to grapple with in all of these different areas. Is he God or is he not? Is he God or is he not? When I look upon the face of Christ, can I see the glory of God or not? When I look upon the face of Christ, is, is the image of the invisible God revealed to me or not? Is he the perfect imprint of his nature or not? No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. That's the claim that's made here. And it's the claim of Christianity. It's the root of everything that we do here. Is Jesus Christ God or not? And that's, that's ultimately what it all comes down to. So going back to my invitation in the beginning, I want to say to you that in the beginning was the Word, Jesus Christ. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him is life, and his life is the light of men, and his light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. And to all who receive him and believe in his name, he is given the right to become children of God, born not of the flesh, but of God, spiritual rebirth. And in him we can see his glory. The image of the invisible God is revealed to us. And we can relate and identify with our God because he entered into flesh for us and dwelt among us and made payment for us. So what could I possibly charge us with from such a high declaration? What could I, as a lowly preacher, call you to when I've just said, receive Christ? Now go do this. No. No. 
I want to read to you guys this morning the end of the high priestly prayer. We did this in my GC the other week because it was on my heart and it just hasn't left me. Jesus prayed this right before he was betrayed to a Roman cross. He said this, I don't ask for these only, but I also ask for those who will believe in me through their word, through the ones that God had, the Father had given to him. He says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you, that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Guys, what John begins in the beginning of John, Jesus himself doubles down on times a thousand in his prayer at the end of his life. John describes a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, one God and three persons participating in a story that from eternity past was about magnifying his glory and his grace by redeeming a people by the blood of the cross. And by it, when we receive Christ, when we receive new life in Christ, and we receive new birth and become a new creation, we are no longer our own. We are wrapped up in oneness. You want to talk about the fullness of Christ that we have all received? It's not talking about something that we come to him independently to get our portion. We're talking about being wrapped up in the fullness of Christ as one with him. He in us and us in him. This was the high prayer of the one who came for us. So my charge for you this morning is to be. It's just to be. To receive. As we respond, and I invite you guys to do that, to take a moment and to be that. I want to do something weird this morning. If your body will allow it, and if it won't, just a posture in your heart, to turn around and face your chair and to get down on your knees before the Father. I want to read Ephesians 3 to you guys as you guys get into position. I'll join you. Paul says this, it's for this reason that I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Remain where you are, guys, and talk to the Lord who offers you fullness to fill you with all the fullness of God, 
by his spirit in your inner being. 